Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Yael. Hi, Diana. It's so great to see you today. It's good to see you too. I'm excited to bring the interview that I did with Dr. Michael Kearney, who is a palliative care physician and has worked for a long time with people in pain. And in this interview, he's talking, uh, he talks about his own experience of burnout and how he has learned from a, mu- a number of different practices how to allow pain to move through him. So I'm really excited to share it with you. And I actually think it's pretty relevant. To also to our work as therapists because we work with a different type of pain, which is more the emotional pain. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that in our line of work, carrying people's pain and, and learning how to handle it and to manage or refrain from burning out is so critical to being able to sustain our work and to do our work as well as we can. What, what are the ways that you've discovered in your practice and in, in your professional life and in your sort of uh, daily life to manage carrying all the pain of the work that you do and then come home and, and sort of be present for other roles in your life like parenting? Yeah. Well, I think it's it's changed over time. And it's interesting because the unique position of a therapist is that we're holding a lot of confidential information. So I, unlike, you know, people that have conflicts at work or pain at work, and they can go home and just blab it all to their spouse or partner <laughs> or kids, I really can't do that, you know, because I'm holding confidential information. And so actually, I was thinking about this, that when I was in graduate school and in my early training, in some ways it was really built into the model because we'd have supervision. And I've really had an opportunity to have some really wonderful supervisors that um, held me and were with me in some really difficult circumstances. I remember clearly um, Dr. Alicia Brass being one of them. She's actually on one of our episodes. And she was with me in my first um, experience of having a client attempt suicide. And it was, was, of course, she covered all of the, you know, legal and ethical and all of that, you know, foundational stuff, but it was really her presence with me in that experience that helped me as a young graduate student, you know, really overwhelmed, manage something that was way over my head. Um, 
That's so supervision early on has been really helpful. And then more recently, I don't have that. So I have to create it. And I think creating it through relationships with other colleagues and all of my best friends are psychologists. <laughs> uh, Conveniently enough. <laughs> so we have consultation with each other. Mm-hmm. and uh, But also, I think, as Michael Kearney talks and alludes to, I really have had to turn to some alternative practices. So going on retreat has been really important to me. And I found uh, things like yoga retreats as a way to really come back to myself and find myself again. And uh, things even within my own sessions. So I've learned from different uh, mentors and yoga teachers, things, little strategies like doing a little um, smudging of myself with like a little incense or a little uh, between clients. So you kind of have a clearing uh, between clients, uh, things like nature connection that Michael talks about, breathing, mindfulness, all of that. How about you? you sound like you- some really good strategies. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that I um, have such a nice creative set of strategies, but I definitely call upon uh, friends and colleagues, not friends outside of the field, but but I am actually still good friends with Alicia Broth. So she's actually somebody that I still call when I'm in a pickle, um, when I'm feeling stuck or burned out or, or just kind of overwhelmed by um, pain or, or, or just uncertainty. I an interesting thing is that I think that it's not for me so much carrying other people's pain that overwhelms me and burns me out. It's the sense that I'm not doing it an effective job in carrying it. And I think that really is the time where I need colleagues support to either help me develop some new strategies or to sort of be compassionate with myself that um, in the role of therapist, our job is not to fix everyone um, in, in such a simplistic way that it's a really complicated job. Sometimes it's really just to be there with them. And paradoxically, having somebody be there with me as I'm feeling so uncertain in that role can can really help soothe me and make me feel more comfortable in, in the role that I'm in as a therapist. So right. I think a lot of that connecting to other people is really uh, quite helpful. And I also look back on some of the mentorship that I had early on as being really critical in the development of my abilities to do this role in an ongoing way. And um, one of the supervisors that I had, I think, worked closely with you, Malia Sperry, and she was wonderful. And I think one of the imagery techniques that she taught me has really stayed with me, which is that when you're um, in a place that isn't uh, where the pain sort of primarily resides, that one of the things that she taught me to do is to sort of generate an image of a box and sort of put the pain in the box and kind of set it aside to make room for whatever it is that I need to be present to do. And then you can always come back and open the box and deal with it when the time is right. So there are some ways that I do that so that I can be more present in whatever role that I'm in. Um, And then the other thing that I do that's more of a concrete strategy is that I really set pretty firm boundaries with patients um, and with my own time that there's time that I'm in my therapist role and that I'm, I try to be as self-aware as I can. And I think you talk a lot about self-awareness in this episode. Um, so I try to be very self-aware that when I'm drifting back into thinking about my therapist role, when I'm not actually in the therapist role, that I sort of bring myself back to whatever the moment really requires of me. And if I have to do that again and again, then, then that's part of the practice that I engage in. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Kearney, um, as represented in this episode and also just um, reading his book, he really brings his human self 
into his work as a physician. And of course, I'm thinking the whole time, I want him as my doctor. He's so amazing. But uh, I also have been noticing as I've gotten you know, older as a therapist that I, I bring more of myself in and I allow myself to cry with clients. Uh, yeah. And I allow myself to, 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 and that's part of the, you know, I think there's, it's both, it's both being able to box it, you know, that I don't want to start sobbing and they're taking care of me, (laughs) but also allowing the pain to move through me and feel like really feel the pain that they're feeling with them. And actually, I think that's one of the things that Malia uh, modeled to me because I remember times in supervision with her where I would be tearing up and then she'd be tearing up with me while we're talking yeah. about a client that, that I cared about and that it's okay to care deeply about these people right. that I work right. with. And I, so crying is actually one of the things that I've been trying to practice more of. So allowing myself to cry with clients, but then also I find myself a lot of times in a yoga class, I'll just start crying. And I think part of it is I'm letting go of all of the pain that I've been holding. So finding ways for it to move through our bodies and be released. And then, you know, it's like a good rain. And then afterwards you feel sort of bright and cleansed again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the metaphor of the nest in the stream that Dr. Kearney talks about. And, and I think that you've talked about that in a previous episode is this idea that when we feel just intimately connected with somebody, when we're in pain, it, it makes that experience that much more tolerable and, and it does allow you to move through it as opposed to get stuck in it. There's something about that deep connection that is so powerful and healing. Yeah. So take a listen to this episode with Dr. Kearney. And I think that whether you personally work with pain or you with uh, have a family member in pain, I think you'll find it really helpful. Michael Kearney has spent over 30 years working as a physician in end-of-life care. He trained and worked at St. Christopher's Hospice in London with Dame Cicely Sanders and founder, the founder of Modern Hospice Movement, and subsequently worked for many years as medical director of Our Lady's Hospice in Dublin, and later with Professor Balfour Mount at McGill University in Montreal. He is currently a medical director of the Palliative Care Consultation Service at Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital and an associate medical director at Visiting Nurse and Hospice Care, also in Santa Barbara. He teaches nationally and internationally and is the author of three books in the field, including Mortally Wounded and A Place of Healing, and the book that we're going to be discussing today, The Nest in the Stream, Lessons from Nature on Being with Pain. Thank you, Dr. Kearney. Thank you, Diana. Welcome. So maybe we can just begin by talking about what is palliative care and what what is sort of your day-to-day work look like? Right. Uh, Palliative care is um, a relatively new subspecialty of internal medicine. It's an area of care that is really about focusing on an individual's quality of life. So it's for for persons who are living with serious illness. And that's one of the kind of distinctions we sometimes have to make when we're introducing our program to people uh, in the hospital or in the, you know, come into clinic from the community. Uh, we have to make the distinction between palliative care and hospice. Uh, there, there's some overlap, but, but they're two very different areas of care. And palliative care um, is available to anybody with a, a serious diagnosis. So that could be somebody um, 
with a brand new cancer diagnosis, for example, who's just got news of um, uh, of their diagnosis and is you know adjusting to that and coming to terms with what that might mean and beginning to uh, maybe beginning treatment, maybe having some side effects of treatment, which we could possibly help with medically. Um, and it kind of goes through the full spectrum of illness from sort of new diagnosis and adjustment around that to to folks who are living with advanced illness and, uh, you know, approaching the end of life and uh, approaching that point where they might transition onto hospice care. So it includes that as well. But it's the, it's 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 in terms of who it's for. It's really the full spectrum of illness of serious illness um and it's very much whole person care it's it's about paying attention to the person and to their family uh, so the family is seen as the unit of care with the patient at the center so for example in our palliative care team at cottage hospital we have a social worker we have a psychologist who's also a mindfulness teacher um, we've got um, a number of nurses and a nurse practitioner um, as well as um, me and other doctors who work with the team and support the team um, and palliative care exists in the hospital setting and now in fact throughout north america most every major hospital major acute hospital has a palliative care team a palliative care service and and essentially it's a consultation service so we don't usually take over the care of patients um, we come in to give advice on on a pain and symptom management to sit down with the patient and the family to have conversations about the direction of care are you happy where things are going or would you like to change the emphasis of your care and maybe move in a different direction um we so that kind of goes into the whole area of advanced care planning um we then go from there to um uh, working with hospice if somebody is transitioning into hospice either going home on hospice or going into inpatient hospice um working with those teams to help that person and family make that transition into those other areas of care. So those are some of the areas we get involved with uh, as palliative care. And what brought you to doing this work? Well, um, I've been doing this work now for a little over 35 years, and um, I became interested in, in, in all of this before it was called palliative care. Um, back then it was called hospice. Um, I mean, hospice included palliative care. So since then, palliative care has sort of um, emerged as its own subspecialty. But back then, uh, hospice, uh, it was just hospice care. And I became interested really as, as a medical student. I was... Um, I was sort of halfway through my medical studies when I... Um, began to feel a little disillusioned with what I saw the emphasis of, you know, biological evidence-based medicine um, and how particularly uh, folks who were living with advanced and terminal illness seemed to get a little cast aside by the system, particularly at that time, which was in the early 70s. And um, 
I talked to somebody about this, a mentor of mine at the time, and said, you know, I, I'm not sure I really want to, you know, go ahead with my medical studies. And he, his advice was, he said, well, before you leave medicine, why don't you go and look at this place in London called St. Christopher's Hospice? Um, and his sister worked there at the time as a hematologist. Um, and uh, he said, uh, the way he described it was, he said, it's a place of healing. He didn't say it's a hospice for the dying or it's even hospice. He even knew the word hospice. He, he said it's a place of healing. And there was actually something in that phrase, a place of healing, that kind of resonated deeply with me. And then I went and spent a week there as, um, as a medical student, did a sort of a one-week training, actually, that they were offering. And I was, I was hooked. I just... I. I kind of loved what I saw, what I experienced while I was there. Um, I kind of felt, yeah, this is why I'm doing medicine. And um, somehow I began to realize what that phrase, a place of healing, meant. You know, here were people who were physically deteriorating, very ill at the end of their lives, and yet they were some of the most whole and complete people I'd ever met. And um, and that's been a whole an area that I've been very interested in since then. You know, what does what does healing mean in the context of medical care? We focus so much on prevention and on cure and on fixing. We don't think a lot in in kind of mainstream uh, Western medicine. We don't think a lot about healing and whole person care. And that's what you also write a lot about in your book, The Nest in the Stream. You talk about this distinction between curing versus healing and some of the non-Western medical approaches that, that you use in healing and things like mindfulness and nature connection and belonging. Um, can you speak a little bit to maybe just start with how you've defined healing and how that has evolved over time as a physician when you're working with patients. What are you doing to, to cultivate healing? Right. Um, well, I could approach that in, in a number of different ways. Um, one way I could approach it is by um, thinking about what's called total pain um, one of my mentors, Cicely Saunders, who you mentioned in your introduction, who, as you said, is really the pioneer of the modern hospice movement. She was, she she began medical hospice in England at around the same time as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was was doing her work here in the states. Um, but uh, Cicely Saunders wrote uh, in in the early days of hospice. She she defined this concept of total pain. And she said, you know, think of an iceberg. What we, what we see of an iceberg is just the very tip that nine-tenths of the iceberg are below the surface. And, and that's true of an individual's pain as well. When somebody comes to us with physical pain or with chronic pain or even with emotional pain or psychological pain, there's just a lot more below the surface. So this was a way of kind of talking about this more holistic concept of pain to a medical audience that kind of made sense. And she, she talked about, okay, if the tip of the iceberg is the physical pain. Then there's the social pain, the emotional pain, 
psychological pain, existential pain, and there's even staff pain, you know, where, where an individual's pain resonates with, uh, with, a, with a caregiver's own uh, experience of pain or trauma. And that's, that becomes part of the total pain experience. So one way of talking about healing is in terms of thinking about total pain and responding to total pain in a very holistic way. And, uh, we do that in palliative care and hospice by both emphasizing um, the value of all the different, inter, you know, different disciplines. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, um, chaplaincy, uh, psychology, uh, social work, nursing, medicine, um, volunteers who are kind of trained to work in this area. So. So one way of responding to total pain is really responding as a team that somehow kind of covers the whole spectrum of need and can respond to the different specific needs. But another way that we, and I, I particularly have, have, have thought about this and written about this and trying to teach about this as best I can, is, is the idea that in some ways, each of us can be a sort of a one person interdisciplinary team, not in the sense of, you know, I'm not a social worker and I'm not a chaplain and I'm, I don't try to be. But, but what I mean by that is really valuing and appreciating bringing who I am as a person, as well as the skill set I have to the bedside. And so, um, so we respond by having a very broad kind of canvas of disciplines that can respond to the different needs of the patient and the family, but also by trying to emphasize in our training and our teaching and our kind of ongoing support that who you are as a person matters as much as what you bring in terms of your knowledge and your skills. Mm -hmm. Your presence. Your presence. Your pre your presence. So, so that's one way of talking about it. Another way that I just like to add a second way, and, and in a way, the second way, the first way is is more uh, the more classical palliative care answer to your question, um, coming from that perspective, and that's what I've written more about in my earlier books. Um, in the nest in the stream, I kind of come at it from a different, a slightly different angle, and that is. I I think about and talk about pain. Um, I talk about suffering, I should say. I make a distinction between pain and suffering and talk about suffering as pain in isolation. Pain, if we experience pain and we combine that with an experience of isolation as in disconnection from ourselves, from others, from our world, if we're kind of trapped in a bubble of our painful experience that's suffering and so within that conceptualization of pain then healing is when we come into um, a bigger open system and when we come back into deep connection with ourselves with others with our world with the natural world um, that the, the the wound is still there, but something about changing the context coming into that bigger field of experience 
uh, can change our personal experience of, of, of pain or of suffering rather. Um, I remember uh, a young man who said to me once uh, after such a moment, uh, he said, the pain is still there, but I can live with it now. Whereas prior to that, the pain was there and it was overwhelming and it was closing his life down and he couldn't live with it. Somehow after coming into that experience of uh, deep connection, of interconnection, of um, community, essentially, coming out of that experience of isolation, transformed his experience into something very different. And in The Nest in the Stream, you talk about your own experience as what you call a wounded healer, of your, uh, as a healer working with the population that you do, you also are co-experiencing pain and ways and strategies that you've adopted over time to work with your own pain as well. And some of those have been Native American practices, uh, practices that are movement into nature, practices that are uh, Buddhist practices. Can you speak a little bit to maybe maybe starting with um, how you start the book around some of the Native American sweat lodge practices that you use personally and how that influences your work and your own experience of pain? Yeah, um, and that's true. I mean, if I think of my personal support system, um, now that is very much part of it and that is very much part of my ongoing um, spiritual practice. Uh, um, nature connection practice and uh, attending sweat lodge ceremony, which I feel very lucky and privileged to be able to do on a fairly regular basis. Um, but if I could just to answer your question, kind of maybe come to the the story that's at the center of the book, yes. uh, because in a way that I think speaks to this. Um, uh, the book, as you, you introduced, is is called uh, the Nest in the Stream. The story behind this is that I came to a point where I realized I was pretty burnt out in my work. I um, had been working with some others on an article for the medical journal JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, on self-care and burnout in uh, physicians working um, at the end of life. And as I did this, and as I learned more about burnout, I basically recognized myself in all those symptoms. Um, you know, that description of uh, emotional and physical exhaustion, that sense of um, never quite achieving in one's work what one wants to achieve, a sense of lack of personal accomplishment, and a sense of kind of dissociation and disconnection, um, not as engaged in the whole process as I had been previously. So I recognize this, but what was a little alarming for me is that the self-care practices that we were advocating in our article, which were a combination of traditional self-care practice, which is, um, you know, have good professional boundaries and combine that with time out where you, you know, do the sort of things uh, that, you know, restore and renew you outside the, uh, the workplace. I was doing that. Um, in addition to that, 
in our piece, we were really advocating a mindfulness-based approach to self-care. And we were by no means the first to do this, but you know, others have been writing about it in the medical literature, but we were sort of adding our voice to, to those other voices and talked about it as self-awareness-based self-care. So it was a combination of knowing ourselves, but also cultivating mindfulness. And if we brought that into our clinical interactions, um, it was really possible to, uh, we use the phrase in, in our article, um, it, it was possible to learn how to breathe underwater. That we didn't just have to wait till work was over to come up for air. We could actually find oxygen in the workplace if we brought that, that kind of spaciousness that mindfulness can bring us into the encounter. And one of our co-authors, just a brief aside for a moment, um, who I think any of your listeners who are psychologists might be interested in his work, um, his name is Richard Harrison, and he was one of our co-authors in that paper. And he had he was in Santa Barbara at the time doing a doctoral thesis um, on work he had done with trauma therapists who were peer identified as thriving in their work as opposed to succumbing to vicarious traumatization and burnout. And he had interviewed them and analyzed their replies to sort of identify protective practices. And the key practice that he identified was what he called self-awareness, which was kind of a combination of self-knowledge and mindfulness. And he said, if, 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 a, if a trauma therapist can bring that sort of mindful self-awareness into the workplace, um, it allows them to practice what he called exquisite empathy, a form of empathy that was non-traumatizing, you know, because Charles Figley and others who've written a lot about vicarious traumatization and compassion fatigue talk about empathy being potentially a liability to us being vicariously traumatized. So anyway, it was great to have that team together, those ideas coming together. But coming back to my story, um, I was doing my best to practice all of that and the more traditional methods of self-care, and yet was still burnt out. And so the story of the nest of the stream, that's the kind of prelude. Um, I was on retreat with a Native American couple who, in fact, are my... Native American teachers here in, in this area and they had sent all of us in the group out onto the uh, the, the land uh, this is a retreat and conference center here in Santa Barbara called La Casa de Maria which tragically damaged in the in the, the mud flow in, um, in January uh, but hopefully we'll be back before too long but anyway the land there is very special very beautiful very sacred um and very sacred to the shumash people who are the the local um indigenous people in in santa barbara and so they sent us out onto the land and with with a very simple instruction which was to find somewhere on the grounds of la casa de maria that you felt you'd like to spend some time you know because you're going to have to, you know, two or three hours just to spend in that place and to bring with you whatever question is up for you at the moment. 
and just to go find a place where you can be, where you can sit or you can lie on the ground and, and just gently hold that question and notice what comes towards you. And so I did, and I wandered to the east side of the property where there's a creek and there was still water flowing through the creek. Uh, it was early summer. And when I came down uh, to the, the side of the creek, there was a pool. And it was, even though the water was flowing in above and flowing out below, the pool was very still and very calm. And when I looked in into the pool, I saw the shape of something under the water. When I looked more closely, it was a bird's nest, a large bird's nest, just under the surface. And when I looked for a while, when I watched it, I noticed how the water was moving through the nest ever so slowly. And um, I just, uh, that moved me, you know, physically. I just really felt some kind of resonance in my body to, uh, to, to what I was witnessing and what I was seeing. Um, and I came back and joined, uh, later joined the circle of others who had, were coming back from their time on the land and we all shared our stories but you know it wasn't until sometime later probably weeks if not months later that i began to realize that i'd been given an answer to my question and my question that i brought with me onto the land that day was is there a better way that i can be with my pain because what i'd come to recognize is that the reason I was still burnt out despite practicing all these self-care practices that I knew about and had been teaching to others. I'd come to recognize and realize that the reason for that is that I was carrying a lot of accumulated grief and a lot of accumulated pain uh, uh, from my personal life, but more so probably from my professional life. Um, it was just day after day, hour after hour. I mean, I've just come home for this interview from a morning in the hospital, you know, just being in the presence of people who are in a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And, um, you know, yes, we do our triage meetings and we do our debriefs, but, you know, we don't have a lot of time to, to do any kind of grieving or processing, you know, before the next referrals come in and the next referrals come in and the next referrals. Anyway, so I, 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 I come to that realization and that had become my question. And I began to realize that the nest in the stream was somehow an answer to that question. And I've reflected on that a lot over the months and indeed years since then. And, and, and kind of, received a number of teachings from that as I've, as I've lived with that and thought about it. And, and one of those is that when I look at the nest in the stream, the nest is in the stream. It's not in the tree above the stream or in the sense it belongs. It's there in the stream. And, and that kind of really calls my particular attention to it. Um, and what, what that tells me is something about being deeply embedded in nature and being deeply embedded 
in the kind of natural flow of of how things are um because i my my sense was that the nest was something about my pain or something about my suffering and so here it was you know deeply embedded and deeply enmeshed in in the flow the natural flow of nature the water was flowing through the nest and there was something in that and there is something in that for me about paradoxically uh, turning towards my pain and and being receptive to my pain rather than uh rather than ignoring it or rather than repressing it rather than just moving on to the next thing actually allowing myself to feel what i'm feeling but the stream continues to flow through the nest so there is also something in the nest in the stream for me about not holding on to the pain that it's okay yes it's a, it's important to open and allow ourselves to experience what we're experiencing but it's also okay and in fact very okay to to release that to the flowing through of the of the deeper stream and so um so i recognized in that kind of wash some of what i needed to um sort of medicine i needed to 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 make me well and a nature connection was a big you know a very big piece of that and so that's coming back to your question um that's where uh when i go to sweat lodge that's what that's what those ceremonies are about sort of coming back to earth in a very sacred way and um very powerful way and i can you know i i go there on a monday night often just very aware of how much pain i'm carrying from my work and um there's something about that process of sitting with others in a circle in the dark on the earth um and really the whole in the whole ceremony is 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 a, a ceremony of of uh sort of purification um but it's uh you know just as one in, in the heat of the ceremony one sweats a lot and one sweat literally rolls down one's body onto the earth and 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 it's occurred to me as i've sat there in the dark and this has been happening how it's almost like that flowing through of the nest in the stream and um you know i come out of that feeling uh sort of feeling myself again you know it brings me back to myself uh, to to who i am and uh, and i and i feel my my feet more more deeply on the earth and and it kind of gives me a sort of a peace of heart and uh, kind of strengthens me so um and and I, and i also get that through my everyday connections with nature and one of my teachers over the years besides my native american teacher another important teacher for me has been uh somebody called John Young who um has done a lot of work in the the new nature movement 
and does a lot of work with nature connection and with um, mentorship and particularly with school going children and their parents. Um, one of the beautiful things that John and his program does is kind of take, takes indigenous teachings and makes them very accessible, um, kind of packages them, if you like, in a very, a very accessible, everyday sort of a way. So, so that's become just part of my daily practice. I mean, when I take the dogs for a walk in the forest, um, I'm not just not just enjoying the exercise or not just enjoying the fresh air or not just enjoying the beauty, but I actually, through these practices, just allow myself come into connection with a tree or with a bird or with the grass or, um, and, uh, that brings me to a similar place that I come to through the sweat lodge ceremonies. So that's been really helpful. And as you describe that suffering as being alone with pain, nature connection can be another way of not being alone, that it doesn't just have to be being with people that we can feel connected, but it's being with, with animals, being with the earth, being connected to the greater interconnectedness of all around us that helps us hold the pain and, as you describe, allow it to flow through. Absolutely. Flow yeah. Through. yeah. Absolutely. You know, just there's a very interesting study that was done with um, – folks who were very close to the end of their life. And this was done in, in Montreal uh, by a colleague of mine, Balfour Mount, and some other researchers. And they talked to uh, 20 individuals, 10 of whom were identified as really not doing at all well. They were really struggling and feeling... Um, frightened and unhappy and rated their quality of life as being very poor. Uh, and then there was another 10 with similar diagnosis, similar social circumstances, similar age groups. So all of those kind of demographics were the same. But in contrast to the first group, the second group were describing their quality of life as being good, uh, very good. Some, some individuals saying, you know, I know it's strange to say this, but this has been the best year of my life, you know, and um, and so those kind of comments coming. And so they did this qualitative interview process and again analyzed their, their interviews and they were able to identify. Uh, basically, they said it all came down to the presence or absence of healing connections. If an individual felt isolated felt disconnected and they talked about four areas from themselves, from others, from the phenomenal world or from what they called ultimate reality. However, that individual conceptualized that if the individual felt cut off or isolated in those areas, they found themselves in the, the group that were unhappy and frightened and hopeless and rated their quality of life poorly. Whereas if the individuals were in the other group where there were healing connections to themselves, to others, to the phenomenal world, or to ultimate reality, that really made all the difference. So, yeah, so absolutely. Um, we can come into that 
bigger sense of connection and community and belonging um, very much through through nature and through the connection with the living earth and yeah how does that work when somebody is suffering and they're suffering indoors and they're you know in a hospital setting or they're in a bed setting in a room that they can't leave from i mean it's certainly we can bring people in are there other resources and thinking about animals as resources or other resources that you encourage to create more connection to the earth and nature yeah i think um i think that's right we can we we can find ways um i think first of all it's important to acknowledge as you do that it's uh our most of our hospital design and value systems around that design don't include this possibility. They're not built for connection, really. They're built for easiest access to technology. Um, and um, and so ha- having, you know, so building in a, a kind of into, if it can come into hospital design, yeah. that would be absolutely transformative. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, the hospital I work with here in Santa Barbara, Cottage Hospital, has this incredibly beautiful garden area um, as part of the new hospital wing with what's called a river of life flowing through it with a pond that's full of water lilies and all these kind of trees that have grown up. And, um, and you know, I, I, I walk by the windows on my way to the different floors to see patients and I always look out there and it's just so rare to see anybody sitting out there. Mm-hmm. So lovely. And, and, and I do, or, or so lovely to see someone out there. I mean, just um, earlier this morning, I wandered by and I looked out and I saw this mom standing with her little girl, you know, and they were both looking at the pond. I could see them in the distance. It was just lovely to see that. But, but yes, I think, you know, just, I, I think that was a really important study uh, that Mountain and, and, and his colleagues did because, you know, this was a small group of people, just 20 people, but here they were at the very end of their lives. And I think end of life is sort of like a microcosm. Everything comes into sharper focus. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of the confusion and the distraction and the, what's superfluous is just kind of burned away. And one is often left with the, the essential. And, and this is coming from people who are living that, you know, this isn't anybody putting words into anybody else's mouth. So this is individuals own experience of what really transformed their experience. So having that study, and I think in some ways it just feels like common sense. Um, that yeah you know it it's really valuing the importance of family the importance of relationship the importance of good communication uh, it's really valuing helping people to be in touch with their own feelings of what's going they're going through you know we ask people a lot in palliative care how are you doing you know uh, in your body from a kind of symptom point of view are you in pain are you nauseous are you short of breath are you feeling fatigued are you hungry are you not hungry are you sleeping at night Um, but an equally important question to ask is how are you doing in yourself 
mm-hmm. how are you in your spirit? You know, just that question about that person's inner life and their inner experience um, is almost countercultural in a, in a hospital, an acute hospital setting. It's not, not valued. But that, that is helping that individual to connect with themselves. So if, if Mount is right and healing connection can be with self, with others, and then with the phenomenal world, Yes, you're right. I mean, it's lovely to see this whole movement about bringing bringing animals uh, into hospitals and pet therapy and, you know, people getting pet passes so they can bring their own animals in, uh, you know, and seeing, seeing dogs up on the bed and, and so on. That's, that's, that's really lovely. And um, at Serenity House, the inpatient hospice where I work here in town, you know, we really encourage people to bring in their own animals just to spend time with them and we've even had horses visiting (laughs) so you know um so i mean those are more kind of dramatic examples but i also think we can if we really think about nature connection and the power of nature connection um I think, for example, mindfulness of breathing, I think of that as a nature connection practice, because what is the breath? You know, uh, you know, yes, it's a physical sensation, but it is also about the exchange of, of oxygen and carbon dioxide, you know, that are moving from our lungs uh, into the into the air that are being taken in by the trees and the grasses that are being transformed back into the carbon dioxide being transformed into oxygen that we, so breath is, is us participating in this sort of reciprocal exchange between us as living beings and the living earth. And so, you know, bringing our awareness to the physical sensation of the breath and when our mind takes takes us away again and again and again, just gently recognizing that and releasing the thought and coming back gently to the sensation and allowing ourselves to become one with that sensation, that's a form of nature connection. Um, and so our psychologist who's a mindfulness teacher will go and sit with a patient and if they're interested obviously and open like the idea will lead them in a guided meditation and record it on their cell phone and then they can listen to it afterwards um and then the other thing that you can do in a hospital setting and particularly if you're lucky enough to have something like the sort of gardens in the hospital where i work is is really just encouraging people to to get outside and to and to sit and to feel the sun on their face, you know, it's not too hot, <laughs> um, or to feel the cool, if it is too hot, um, of, of sitting in the shade, or just to listen to the sound of water. Because the key to nature connection is sensory awareness. It's about bringing our senses to uh, the ac- actual experience um, of whether it's our visual sense, really coming into that visual sense and seeing what we're seeing. If it's the tactile sense coming into the sense of touch, it's a kind of form of mindfulness, but through all our senses. And, and something really phenomenal happens when, when we do that with the living earth. You know, we're not doing it with an inanimate object. We're doing it with a living process. 
um, which from an indigenous point of view, you know, has its own life, has its own intelligence. Um, and so if we open to that, if we're receptive to that through the senses, you know, I think something really beautiful can happen. Absolutely. One of the practices that I really enjoy, I do a 50 minute session. So in my 10 minutes between clients, I've made a commitment to myself never to write a note. And instead, one of the things that I like to do is just to walk to the garden and just stand in the sun and breathe and look at what's growing or find a flower and observe or a bird landing on a flower. And as, as you've described, it really helps me be able to let go of one client, get back to myself, connect to nature, and then move on to the next. And that pause, that honoring is really important to be able to see as a therapist working with a different type of pain, you know, uh, hour after hour, we, we must find some ways to be able to hold that and allow it to move through us. And another Another thing that I was thinking of with nature connection or what I've noticed is I often do safe place imagery with clients. And more often than not, when people, when I have people imagine or think about a place where they felt safe and connected at peace, it's more often than not a place in nature. So I also and, and help them with that vivid imagery of what was it like to, what did you hear? What did you feel? What did you see when you were in that moment in time? And that could also maybe be a way to bring that into, you know, a hospital room or a bedroom. Imagery can also be a powerful tool in helping access some of that experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love, I love what you're describing there. And I think that's very true uh, as indeed can memory memory. Yeah. As indeed can memory and going back very vividly, kind of a combination of guided imagery and memory. Um, uh, just the other day at Serenity house, um, I, I was visiting with this, um, this woman who was at her, her father's bedside and uh, he was very 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 close to the end of his life you know just in his as it turned out in his final hours um, and she was talking to me about how she had been she'd been doing some really beautiful things at his bedside one of which I'd never seen done before this man was in his 90s and she was reading him children's books from his childhood oh. they still had she'd found some old books you know published in the 1920s and she was sitting reading and reading Winnie the Pooh and um, and I thought that was just so beautiful but she talked about how her dad loved the sea loved Santa Barbara loved the Sierra loved this part of the coast loved the sea and loved uh, the islands and so and she remembered how he used to take her to the islands. And so she did, um, and I heard this afterwards from our integrative therapist at Serenity House, who does a lot of imagery with uh, image work with patients. Um, I think they possibly did this together, but she, she described how this man's daughter just led him in a sort of memory that turned into an image guided imagery of sort of getting on the boat together and crossing the channel and coming off onto the islands and just describing the light and the quality of the water and the seabirds. And, um, uh, she obviously did a really, really beautiful job. And, uh, we, you know, he wasn't awake or didn't wake again to say how it was for him, 
but he he passed away just hours later. Yeah. Wow, that's very beautiful. Yeah, and that takes a lot of um, presence for the daughter to to have that willingness to step into those memories as well, because I imagine that was quite painful for her mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. do as well. Yeah. yeah great. But but um, but I think it brought her into again into deep connection with him. Yeah. And I think that deep connection allows allows us to bear the pain, you know, because um, it, it, it brings us into the heart space, and and it's possible it's possible to be with the pain because there's that deep sense of love and connection and meaning that comes from being in that place. Yes, wonderful. Well, the book that you've written, The Nest in the Stream, tells stories and talks about your own personal experience and um, is a beautiful weaving of, of how to be with pain through nature connection and belonging and mindfulness. And it's also just a really beautiful book to hold. It's, I, I really, um, there's something about it, the, the cover and just the texture of the paper, and there's a lot of attention to the making of this book. I've already given it as a gift. I gave it as a gift yesterday to my dad who just had surgery and is in some pain. And, um, and I um, encourage people to pick it up. It could be useful if you're personally working with pain in your own body, working with others, and also as gifts, um, as a resource. So thank you for taking the time to write this book and all of your wisdom that you put in it and the time to talk with me today. You're welcome, Diana. And thank you very much for that and for this invitation and this time together. I really enjoyed it. We're very lucky as a community of Santa Barbara to have you here. So thank, thank you. you. And thank I you. will I will put a link to your book uh, up on our website. I encourage people to go to their local bookseller to go and find it. And if their local bookseller doesn't have it, encourage the local bookseller to get it so that they'll have it on their shelves. Yes. I have a website um, that has a lot of material that kind of oh. supports the book, actually including a picture of the nest in the stream, which I took when I was there. So it's michaelcarneymd.com. Perfect. So we'll put a link to the website, michaelcarneymd.com, with more resources that you offer, including a picture of the nest in the stream. And including a couple of guided meditations that Wonderful. have come from the nest in the stream. So they're available. There, Perfect. Right? That's, that's wonderful. Great. A great companion. Well, thank you very much. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens. 